persecuted believers. As I noted last week, that we read what we, the way it has to be arranged for understanding uh, in English, therefore I exhort the elders. But if you were reading this straight through as Peter wrote this letter, you have right after this statement about doing what is right and trusting yourself to the will of God, this term elders, it just is meant to be uh, up front for emphasis. It's striking actually in the way that he wrote it. So he wants us to, you know, he wants to grab them as it were by the collar and bring them near to himself to give him these instructions, to give them these instructions. Because they are the ones who are responsible primarily for the welfare of these people. So at the heart of our passage is this. It's Peter's humble charge, or it's a humble charge to elders to shepherd God's people with the character of Christ and the confidence of reward. He's calling these elders to shepherd God's people with the character of Christ and the confidence that there is a reward for their faithful service. Now, we're going to look at this under four points. Let me mention them to you, and then I'll read it, and we'll look at each of them individually. The four points are this. He begins with his credentials as an apostle. He begins with his credentials, but not only as an apostle, but with apostolic humility. Apostolic humility. He then gives a command to shepherd the sheep. He then mentions the character of this ministry, which is Christ-like love, and the culmination of this ministry, which is confidence of reward. So he has credentials, apostolic humility. He has the command to shepherd the people of God, the character of Christ-like love, and the culmination of confidence of reward. Let me read this passage, and then we'll look at it in focus. So beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Look at how he begins this section here with his credentials and the reflection of apostolic humility. He says, therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. In introducing his address to these elders, of his exhortation to these elders of this church, he is himself demonstrating the very thing that he commands, namely the kind of humility and shepherding care that he's calling these elders of this church to. He's in fact giving his instruction and demonstrating his instruction that he says in number verse 3 that they are to be examples to the flock and here himself is an example of great humility. And Peter stands, as we covered long ago at the beginning of our look at this epistle, as a picture of the very grace that he is reminding this church of, this sanctifying grace, this forgiving grace that God has demonstrated powerfully even in the life of the Apostle Peter and that he is reminding these elders of. It's a sanctifying grace as soon as we think of the name of Peter because This is the once proud apostle who told Jesus that his predictions of his death 
were in fact not going to come true and needed the sharpest rebuke by the Lord who even said he was using his mouth as an instrument of Satan in Matthew 16. This is the Apostle Peter who on the night that Jesus was betrayed said before all of those who were having dinner in the upper room, though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. In other words, anybody else in this room may be weak enough to fall away in a time of testing and in a time of persecution, but I won't because I'm stronger than all of the rest. And of course, the proud, self-assured Peter was brought very low and was shown his own weakness and made to feel his own sin. And so this proud, self-assured, boastful disciple who was brought low is now reflecting the very humility that God was producing in him and is producing in us. No longer is he seeking to set himself above others, but in greatest humility, he addresses himself as a fellow elder. This isn't in any way diminishing his authority as an apostle, again, which we noted last week. It is to say, however, in addition to his unique ministry as an apostle, he also has a shared ministry of eldership and of leading and of caring for the church of God, just like these leaders that God has established there. And so he comes to us in humility and he says, I am one who shares your ministry to Christ. I share in your responsibilities. I share in your temptations. I share in your struggles. I share in your salvation. I share in your rewards. I come as one who is equal with you, not above you. And this is even shown in the way that he says it, that he is coming to them not to say that they share in his experience, but he's saying, I share in your experience, in your experience. And he's coming then to them to give them then this humble instruction. But he does this, as I noted, not merely as a fellow elder, not merely as one on equal footing, but still with the authority of an apostle. But even that is stated with such humility. Where does the authority come from? One, the fact that he is the one exhorting them. He is the one who is calling them to a certain kind of ministry. He's the one who's issuing the command that is apostolic authority. But it comes to us very tenderly, particularly in that phrase right in the middle of verse 1 where he says, he is a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He's a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And in this statement, he really has a twofold purpose that brings out both, again, both sides of it. His role as an apostle and his humility as one who is a servant of Christ. It establishes first his role, his apostolic credentials. He's taking the position of one who has been appointed by Christ as one who walked with Christ, as one who listened to Christ speak, as one who observed his ministry. He is a witness to the sufferings of Christ. And this was, as you may remember, a necessary qualification for an apostle. These were laid out in Acts chapter 1. I just want to remind you of this. It says in Acts chapter 1, when they were wanting to replace Judas, who had committed suicide out of his grief and conviction over what he had done in betraying the Lord, it was grief that was born not out of an understanding of Christ, but a rejection of him as Savior. But nonetheless, they had to replace Judas. And he said in verse 21, in laying out the qualifications of Acts 1, therefore it's necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John, until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. 
And so to say here that he is a witness of the suffering of Christ is to remind them that he is writing to them as an apostle. He is writing to them as one who was with the Lord when he suffered, as one who was with the Lord when he was resurrected, as one who is uniquely qualified and appointed to the office that can give them this exhortation. That can give them this exhortation. And yet, it also is a tender reminder as well that he who witnessed Christ in all of his ministry, he who witnessed Christ in his majesty, as he'll say again in 2 Peter chapter 2, that he witnessed the majestic glory of Christ on the mountain. He's also reminding us that he witnessed as well with the majestic glory, with the miracles, with the profound teaching, he witnessed the suffering, the suffering of Christ. He brings authority, but he also brings understanding. Peter is saying that he was there during the confusion and fear in the garden that ensued when Judas betrayed Christ and the Jewish leaders came with Roman soldiers to take him away. Peter says, I witnessed that. I was there. I was part of that confusion. Peter was a witness to the beatings and to the mockery and to the false charges hurled at Christ during the illegitimate trials that evening that the Jewish leaders rushed him away to try to trump up some kind of false charge to convict him, to hand him over to the Roman authorities. Peter was witness not only to the trials and to the beating and to the mocking, but he was one who remembers that in the midst of that, he was stung with his own failure and denial of Christ, even in that most powerful moment that Luke records for us in Luke twenty-two, sixty-one, where as they were leading Judas, Jesus, from one place to another after having already beaten him and mocked him and so forth. It says in verse 61 that the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, Behold, before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. So Peter, again, is coming here with apostolic authority. I am a witness. I am one uniquely suited to this role to which Christ has appointed me. But I come one who, as one who is humbled, One who comes to you as a fellow sharer in this proclamation, a fellow sufferer, and even more, one who saw the suffering of the one whose name we proclaim, the one for whom we now suffer. This is great humility, and it provides then secondly a tender and a powerful connection with them in their suffering, in their suffering. He's saying, look, I understand. I understand as I write to you this exhortation Because I was a part of those who fell prey to the fear that comes with persecution. I was a part of the one who saw and felt the grief and the pain and the shock of seeing Christ suffer by the hands of the unrighteous. I write to you as one who feels your situation and even as one who has suffered himself. He writes to them then with tender compassion. This is apostolic humility. Apostolic humility. I am your fellow elder. I am one who has witnessed the sufferings of Christ and know the temptations that come with suffering along with him. And I am one who is with you, not above you, a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. It is with this humble authority that he brings them this exhortation. What is the content of this exhortation? He says it in verse 2. This is the command. Shepherd the sheep. 
shepherd the sheep, shepherd the flock of God among you. Shepherd the flock of God among you. And again, here is his authority, but in words of tenderness. Essentially, he's calling them to this. He's saying, this is the ministry you were called to. Now fulfill it to the glory of Christ. This is what Christ has called you to. Now be faithful to that ministry. And here is a beautiful picture. Again, as we read this morning, uh, just by providence, that was where we were in our reading through the Gospel of John. But how it presents a wonderful background and picture to Peter's exhortation here. He says, you are to shepherd the flock of God. To shepherd the flock of God. It's beautiful and tender imagery, that relationship of a shepherd with his sheep out in the fields of Judea and other places in Palestine. The shepherd who was always with his sheep. Even here he brings that out. If you notice twice he says in verse 1, one the elders among you. Verse 2, the flock of God among you. This is a tender language of intimate relationship, of presence, of availability, of personal ministry to these people. As a shepherd was always with his sheep, leading them and guiding them, watching over them, feeding them, making sure they were cared for, that they were led properly, that they were watered, that they had times of rest. If you are building on that picture of your relationship to the people of God, even as Christ himself, he says in verse 4, is the chief shepherd. It's the kind of ministry that Christ has to us. It's the kind of ministry that you are to have to his own people. Sometimes you refer pastors or leaders referred to as under shepherds, and that's the idea. Serving under the great chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the church and every believer then is his flock. His flock. And there's Again, it's a beautiful picture. The flock of God. Shepherd the flock of God. These aren't your people. These are God's people. These are God's children set under your care. And so the language here is of your responsibility, but it's a tender responsibility. These are not merely a group who are called together again out of common interest. But he says the flock of God. In other words, as he said back in chapter 2, you with them are those who were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. These are blood-bought flock. These are blood-bought children. These are redeemed children, precious in the sight of God. And your ministry to them is to be that of a shepherd. And this would have pulled back for Peter, definitely, and for the Jews among his congregation, uh, this deep imagery of the Old Testament. Deep imagery of the Old Testament. The idea of shepherding does not pop out of nowhere. It has deep roots into the revelation of God and a picture of how God has always related to his people. Going back to Genesis. Genesis 48, 15. Jacob, in blessing Joseph, uses this word, uses this language. He refers to God in this way. He says, the God who has been my shepherd... All my life to this day. Isn't that tender? He looked back at the end of his life. Through all of his triumphs. Through all of his troubles. Through all of his struggles. Through all of his blessings. And he looks back and he says. In all of it I see. It's the God who has been the shepherd of my life. The God who has tended to me. The God who has cared for me. The God who has watched over me. God is the shepherd of the nation too. We have this tender 
relationship to God as sheep who followed their shepherd. In Genesis 49, 24, it says, From the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is a shepherd and a stone of Israel. He was the shepherd not only of individuals, he was the shepherd of the nation. The psalmist says, Asaph, in Psalm 81, O give ear, shepherd of Israel, you who led Joseph like a flock. And David said some of the most tender words in Scripture. He said, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is the one who leads me by still waters. The Lord is the one who gives me rest when I need it. The Lord is the one who prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. The Lord is my shepherd, is the one who will follow me with loving kindness and goodness all the days of my life. That was his relationship to the Lord. We see this in many places. Psalm 28, David says this, verse 6, Blessed be the Lord, because he has heard the voice of my supplication. The Lord is my strength and my shield, and my heart trusts in him, and I am helped. Therefore my heart exalts, and with my song I shall thank him. The Lord is their strength, and he is a saving defense to his anointed. And then he says this, Save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd also, and carry them forever. Again, there's just tender words. The prophet Isaiah, or God speaking through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 40, when he was reminding his people of his coming deliverance, reminded them that he was their shepherd. Their shepherd. These are tender, tender words. And it's how God by himself has designed his own relationship with his people. And again, it's of great care and great comfort. By God is the ultimate shepherd. We also see that God has given to his people throughout those who are under shepherds. Again, this isn't imagery that comes just in the New Testament. It has rich roots in the way that God has always cared for his people. He exercises his care ultimately in one sense through his sovereignty and his providence and his leading and his guiding and his providing and his protecting. But he offers his care, he exercises his care through those whom he has appointed to protect, teach, and care for his people. God is the one who ultimately cares, but God always cares through his people, through those whom he has appointed. So through shepherds. He gave, not only is he a shepherd, but he gave shepherds then to his people. Listen to the words of Moses. Just listen as I read from this passage. This will give you, let you hear it. This was the concern of Moses when he was coming to the end of his life after wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, worried about who would come or concerned about who would come after him to care for God's people. And he says this, May the Lord, the God of the spirit of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who will go out and come in before them, who will lead them out and bring them in so that the congregation of the Lord will not be like sheep which have no shepherd. In other words, Lord, they need a shepherd. God answered this prayer in the ministry and the leadership of Joshua. When David was made king of Israel, it was to be not only their ruler, but it was to be their shepherd. 2 Samuel 5.2, it says, The Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be a ruler over Israel. So God, out of kindness, has always provided shepherds to his sheep has always exercised his care and his rule through those who were appointed by him, has always ministered to the needs of his people through those whom he has given to them to fulfill that role. Of course, the sad part is that the story of Israel and 
In that fact, for much of the church, the shepherds have often failed. And this is leading to Paul's own exhortation. But even in the Old Testament, when Israel was in its dark days, when Israel would fall into patterns of sin, when Israel was scattered abroad, who did God blame? He blamed the shepherds. He blamed the shepherds for not fulfilling their duty. Isaiah 56, 11, his watchmen are blind. All of them know nothing. All of them are mute gods, unable to bark. Dreamers lying down who love to slumber. And the dogs are greedy. They are not satisfied. And they are shepherds who have no understanding. And they've turned to their own way, each one to his unjust gain, to the last one. It's your fault, O shepherds of Israel, that my people go astray because you are corrupt. Through Jeremiah, he said this against the leaders, For the shepherds have become stupid and have not sought the Lord. Therefore, they have not prospered, and all their flock is scattered. He says again in Jeremiah 12.10, Many shepherds have ruined my vineyard. They have trampled down my field, and they have made my pleasant field a desolate wilderness. Who does he hold responsible? He's given shepherds for the care of his people, to reflect his love for his people. To provide for his people. But he also rebukes the shepherd when they fail in that ministry. And when the people of God go astray. And when the people of God are not cared for. And when the people of God are not fed on the word of God. It is the shepherds that he holds responsible. It is the shepherds that he calls to account. It is the leaders of his people whom he calls to account. And that's not anything new. We read it last week. Peter told those who were appointed overseers in the church, Acts chapter 20, some from among your own number will rise up and they'll be like wolves among the sheep to do harm and to scatter. Now in the Old Testament then, the great hope, the great hope that was always laid out before the people of God is that God would give them good shepherds, that he'd give them good shepherds. That was a part of his promise. Listen to Jeremiah 3.15. And then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you on knowledge and understanding. He says later in chapter 23, I will also raise up shepherds over them and they will tend them and they will not be afraid any longer, nor will they be terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. The great promise of God's people is that he would give them shepherds, shepherds after his own heart, shepherds who would care for them, who would care for them with God's own heart for his people. But that was never to be known. And so there was a greater promise even still of God to his people. And that was this, that where human shepherds fail, God would not. That where human shepherds would follow eventually overall the path of unrighteousness and leave his people abandoned, God would never do that to his people. And he would give his people good, a good shepherd after rebuking shepherds of Israel for their failure to care for God's people. He says this in verse 11 of Ezekiel 34. He says, thus says the Lord, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and I will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and in all the inhabited places of the land. 
I will feed them in a good pasture, and their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. And there they will lie down on good grazing ground and feed in rich pastures on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock, and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, and strengthen the sick. But the fat and the strong I will destroy and feed them with judgment. He says later, therefore, I will deliver my flock in verse 22, and they will no longer be a prey, and I will judge between one sheep and another. And how is God going to do this? He says in verse 23, and I will set over them one shepherd, one shepherd. Who is this shepherd? My servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself. He will be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will do this. I will make a covenant of peace. I will, he says in verse 29, establish them for a renowned planting place. And they will not be again victims of famine in the land. They will not endure insults of the nations anymore. Looking to this great future day, even to us, of the establishment of his kingdom. He says in verse 30, and then they will know that I, the Lord, their God, am with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord. And here's how he ends. As for you, my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, you are men, and I am your God. That was the great hope of the people, that where the shepherds of Israel had failed, God would provide a shepherd. God would fulfill his own requirements and his own conditions for caring for his people. What man could not do, not even David could do. Even David failed, ultimately, in this responsibility. He would send one who would not fail. And these are the tender words of John 10. Jesus then steps in and essentially in declaring himself to be the good shepherd. Says, I am that fulfillment. I am the one who is promised. I am not only one sent by God, but I am one, as he'll get, we'll read next week, who is equal to the God who made that promise, who in fact is that God. And I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd that calls my own and know them intimately by relationship. I am the good shepherd who lays down my life for them. I am the good shepherd that when the evil one comes will not run away in fear, but stand up to be for them the mediator that they need. I am the good shepherd who will lay down my life. I am the good shepherd who will take it up again. I am the good shepherd who will give you life abundantly. I am the good shepherd who will give you access to the glories and the presence of God so that you may come in and out of good pasture, have free access, as it were, to the presence of God and to the glory of God and to fellowship with God. I am the shepherd who will do that. When Peter comes in and he gives this command, shepherd the flock of God, this is a rich and a full command. These are the people of God of whom God is a shepherd, of whom God has provided a shepherd, who are under the ultimate care of the chief shepherd. Now you, as those appointed by God, shepherd the flock of God among you. Shepherd them. Shepherd my sheep. Jesus told Peter, and now Peter is passing that command on to these people, these leaders, this church. Shepherd them and care for them. And how is this shepherding to take place? Well, he gives three couplets here. 
He says it is to be by exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Nor is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. This is a spiritual organism. It is a spiritual ministry. It is to spiritual ends that you are seeking, and it is therefore with spiritual maturity and Christ-like character that this ministry must be fulfilled. It must be fulfilled. Remember, this is the church indwelled by the Spirit of God, and therefore it requires that its leaders be in line with the Spirit of God in order to spiritually nurture the church. And that's essentially what he calls them to. And Peter is most likely addressing these areas because it is areas of issues and weakness that were displayed among these leaders, and he's calling them back to faithfulness. And these are not areas of weakness and failure only for these that he's addressing, but it is common to the ministry. It's common to the ministry of eldership. And so as I mentioned, he, gives, he addresses this character by giving three sets of contrasts and that he uses in his language here the strongest possible way that he could make this contrast. And each of them address some kind of relationship to the elders. The first addresses the relationship of the elders to God. The second, the relationship of the elders to themselves. And the third, the relationship of the elders to the church. We won't finish all of these, but let's begin to look at them. First, he addresses the relationship, the elders' relationship to God. The elders' relationship to God. He says first, what is this character of this ministry? He says, exercising oversight... Not under compulsion, but voluntarily. But voluntarily according to the will of God. According to the will of God. In other words, this is a ministry to the elders of the church that you have received from God. It is a ministry that he has called you to. It is a ministry that he has entrusted to you. It is the maturity of your obedience and your trust in him that enables you to fulfill it. And the idea here that he says do it willingly is that pertaining to being willing to do something without being forced or pressure. In other words, don't fulfill this ministry with grumbling against God. Don't fulfill this ministry with a sense of discontent before God. But you have a stewardship entrusted to you. Do it willingly. Now we noted last week that Paul in 1 Corinthians noted that he had a ministry of apostleship. And it's one that he was uniquely gifted for and suited to. But this ministry of apostleship came with great sacrifice. It came with a great physical sacrifice, what he endured, emotional sacrifices. He said in 2 Corinthians 12, the burden of the churches far exceeded his suffering, his pain for the physical pain. Because he cared for them that they'd be led into sin. It's not a ministry that he says in 1 Corinthians 9. He would have taken voluntarily. But it was a ministry that he was calling, called to by the risen Lord. He says therefore then it is a stewardship. It is a stewardship. And it is a stewardship then that he gladly accepted. And he gladly gave himself to out of obedience to the Lord. That's part of the idea here of Peter. Don't do it begrudgingly, 
a joyless leader, a frustrated leader, a grumbling leader, a grumbling elder, a complaining elder, and a discontent elder is not going to be able to exercise the kind of example and ministry to the church that God requires of them, that he requires of elders. Your heart, essentially what he's saying here, must be submitted to the Lord completely. And that, of course, applies to all of us. It specifically relates to elders here, but it's whatever ministry the Lord calls us to, it is that we gladly accept it. Do we think there should be more people or more responsibility and God has given us few? Except that is from the hand of the Lord. Do we wish that we were in one place rather than another? Except that from the hand of the Lord. Do we wish it were certain people? Do we wish it was a certain place? Do we wish it was a certain kind of ministry? We do that submitted to the Lord who determines the task that we have been given and gifted for by which we will serve him. And particularly God's leaders need this reminder. Paul had to tell Timothy, who was young, naturally timid apparently by the way Paul addresses him, who faced challenges in his ministry of leadership at Ephesus, who wanted to leave and perhaps did shy away from many of his responsibilities. And so Paul had to tell him, therefore, in 2 Timothy, kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. He saw this dwindling. He saw Timothy's, he saw Timothy, Timothy's tendency to back away because of the pressures, because of the fear, because of the weight, because of what it would cost him. And he says, don't, don't back away. But submit to the will of God for your life. Submit to the ministry that he has called you to. Don't be discontent. He says here, serve, an elder must be served according to the will of God, accepting God's providence and plan for their life. That is, submitting to the ministry God has called us to without regret, without inner conflict, and without tension. It means as well, though, that, as Paul would give instructions in 1 Timothy 3, that it is, if someone desires the office of eldership, then it is a good desire. It is a good thing he desires to do. They used to say in, uh, at least the seminary I attended uh, all the time, a common phrase was, if you can do anything else, go do it. <laughs> if you can do anything else, go do it. You'd hear that all the time. If you'd be happy being a plumber, go be a plumber. If you'd be happy being a business person, go be a business person. If you'd be happy being a school teacher, go be a school teacher. If you can do anything else, and if you want to do anything else and find that you could be content with it, go do it. Don't stay here. Leave. Now, why would they say that? Why would they say that? Because you're going to be racked with disappointment and frustration. You're going to be confronted with circumstances that if your heart is not fully into it, if there's ever an out in your heart, then you will take it. You'll take it. You'll leave. And it'd be better never to enter into this ministry forced or casually than to enter into it and not be able to fulfill it. Not be able to fulfill it to the end. And that's the idea here. It's a good thing you desire to do, but... Realize if you are particularly, if you're called to this ministry as the vocation of your life, the single vocation of your life, make sure that you are doing it with a heart completely submitted to the will of God. 
Make sure that you're doing it with a heart that is ready for what he will call you to. And don't let it become something where it's begrudging, discontent, unsettled. Is you are to fulfill this ministry, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, with a willing heart, with a willing heart. He then notes that you have to come with the right attitude in relation to yourself. In relation to God, you're submitted to him. You receive the ministry that he's called you to. You do it willingly. Secondly, in relation to yourself, he says there at the end of verse 2, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. It could be not for greedy gain, but with eagerness. So while the first addresses the elder's attitude toward God, this is pointing out the element of selfishness that can rise up in his own heart, not only in relation to God, but in relation to his own motives and his own purpose. This is the elder within himself, his ministry in relation to his goals, his motives. He says it's not for personal gain, but for with eagerness. Now, why would he have to give this warning? Why would he have to give this warning? Well, let me give you a few reasons. One is it's clear that those who were called into the full-time ministry of the word, even there at the very establishment of the office of eldership, were to be financially supported by the church. So they weren't, they weren't free from the need for support, those who were called to this, to be full-time. Listen to the way Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, for it is written in verse 9 that the, in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake. It was written because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crop. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more share that right? He says in verse 14, so the Lord also directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. So it was established that those who were called to that ministry of eldership, particularly where that would be their full-time singular vocation in terms of service to the church, that they were to be supported by the church in that ministry. They were to be freed from the normal concerns of life so that they might give themselves to the care and the shepherding of the people of God. They were to be freed from those things that they might be faithful shepherds to the church, that they might study the word, that they might be, as was laid out in early form, as the apostles to the church in Acts chapter 6, that they might dedicate themselves to the word of God and to prayer. That's the ministry he called them to. And so there was the expectation and there was the example already of many who were fulfilling that role and receiving the support and the care of the church to do so. Secondly, in Paul's unique apostolic ministry, in his case, he was supported by the gifts of other churches as he traveled around. Here in Corinth, he says, again in 1 Corinthians 9, nevertheless, we did not use this right but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. So Paul is saying, look, it's my right, it's the right of others, but in your particular case, O Corinthians, I'm not taking what is mine by way of support, materially. Why? 
because that was the nature of accusations against him. False teachers coming in and saying, Paul, you're doing this just for financial gain. You're doing this just from what you can receive. You can bleed these churches dry. And Paul says, no, I made sure that that charge could not be leveled against me. As a matter of fact, he says back in 2 Corinthians 12, again addressing this pack of false teachers, he, in a mocking way, mocking the foolishness of those even among the church who had fallen in or given any kind of credit, credibility to that lie, he says this, here for the third time in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 12, I'm ready to come to you and I will not be a burden to you, that is here in financially his care. For I do not seek what is yours, but you. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. And he said right before that, In what respect then were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not become a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. Forgive me this wrong. How could you listen to that charge that I would be in this for financial gain? And the very fact is that I was among you who, one who gave himself to you fully who gave himself to you completely and received nothing from your hand. I am free from this charge, unlike the false teachers. But that doesn't mean that he was free from the care and the support of churches. As a matter of fact, in Philippians, he's writing to them largely out of the occasion of gratitude for their support for him in his apostolic ministry. Epaphroditus, you know, came and brought a gift. He addresses him and chapter 2 of Philippians, and he says this in Philippians chapter 4. He says, I've received everything in full. I have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. You've supplied my needs abundantly. I am overflowing with care and provisions for my ministry. So he was supported. He was made able to fulfill his ministry because of the support of churches. But in particular cases, he didn't receive this right because he wanted to be free from the accusation of the charges of others, the false teachers. And so three, with that then, it was the case for some, particularly for false teachers, to use their supposed ministry for the purpose of gain. It wasn't a spiritual ministry. It was a fleshly ministry. Unfortunately, this is not uncommon throughout the history of the church. After Constantine and the rise of the political power of the church, it wasn't uncommon to take a parish for the honor and ease of the position, particularly in the Middle Ages and beyond. It was fashionable to enter the priesthood because of its financial and living benefits, living under the auspices of the church. Many entered into the priesthood as a vocation for a comfortable living, not out of a spiritual ministry to the church of God. If you want a good example of that, you Jane Austen fans, think of Mr. Collins. Does anybody know Mr. Collins? That was typical. If you look at novels and movies of that time, the, the clergy are usually bumbling idiots in, in large measure because they were shown to be gritty, greedy and opportunists, and for large measure, many of them were. And from within the church itself came many rebukes about those who entered into the ministry merely as a means of ease of life and prestige and honor. It's nothing new. We think of today, we see it with many, particularly in a particular branch of the professing church, the prosperity gospel, who have great wealth, 
flaunting it with multi-million dollar mansions. I read about one, the use of a $300,000 Bentley, private jets, and so on. It's not merely the possession of wealth, but it is the great flaunting of wealth. There are, in fact, two warnings that are given to pastors when they enter into uh, their ministry. And it is this. There's two areas of temptation to avoid like the plague. You like, don't even go near these in any way, shape, or form. You know what they are? Can you imagine? Money and women. Money and women. Don't ever conduct yourself in a way that you could be accused of impropriety in your relationship with the opposite sex. Don't ever conduct yourself in a way that you could ever be accused or suspected of any kind of wrong relationship. And secondly, guard your heart against the desire for greedy gain. Stay away from money. I was asked to count money once when I first came here. And I said, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. I don't know the combination, if you want, to the safe. So uh, I can't go in there during the week and go get Starbucks from contributions. I'll just say this all hasn't crossed my mind. No, it hasn't. The point is, is there's no access. There, that is two areas of temptation that Satan always wants to aim at the leaders of the church. In the area of sexuality and in the area of financial gain. The area to abuse the people of God for self-seeking ends. And so Paul told Timothy, the elder must not be a lover of money in 1 Timothy 3.3. 3. If you go into it with the love of money, you are opening yourself up for a fall. Satan will take you down. He'll take you down. He'll remove you. He'll bring reproach upon the name of Christ. To Titus, he said the same thing. They must not be greedy for gain. And it's striking then that so many who name the name of Christ and hold forth as his blessing then the very thing that Christ says is your downfall. It's amazing that some would hold up as the blessing of Christ having a multi-million dollar home and mansions and lavish vacations when those are the very things that Scripture warns as being the tool of Satan to bring you down, to invalidate your ministry and to bring your soul to destruction. It's incongruous with the New Testament and with the commands of Christ. And the basic point here is then, beyond financial grain is, gain, is this. Watch yourself to labors. Watch your motives. Watch over your own heart. Serve out of an eagerness to advance the gospel, not your own comfort or prestige. In fact, be willing to lose all of those things for the, for the kingdom of Christ. Well, we're going to end it there, and we'll pick it up uh, there next week. The call here is this to elders, and these are the kind of elders then that must be looked for in the leading of God's church. Why no elder is perfect, there needs to be a consistency of life that can be free from the charge and above reproach of these areas and the ones that we'll look at. But really, this is a charge for every ministry and every servant of Christ to do so with the humility out of gratitude that the gospel produces. To do so with a willingness and a glad, a glad heart in whatever area of responsibility God has entrusted to you. To do it making sure your motives are in no way for your own personal gain, but simply to be faithful to the Lord. May that be our motives. May that be the way that we serve Christ. And even as we come to the table, we ask God to search us and to know us and to prepare us. To worship Him with pure hearts. To worship Him who is our great shepherd, our chief shepherd.
he has purchased for us to be a part of his flock and his people. Let me pray, and then the men will come and we'll stand. Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace to us. Thank you that you have provided for us and met all of the conditions for our salvation. Where we failed and rebelled and where even the best of men in the history of the world have failed. Even the first man, Adam, though created without sin, failed. Only one has never failed. Only one has never sinned. Only one has perfectly obeyed you. Only one is worthy of glory. Only through one could the world be reconciled to you. And only in one could we receive adoption as sons. And that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is his name we exalt. It is his name that we delight in. And it is before you, O Lord, the great shepherd of our souls, that we come to your table to worship you, to remember all you have accomplished for us, to commit ourselves, to live for you with obedience to you. Please produce this in us. In your name, Jesus.